I think we really need to rethink the way we speak to one another and the way we speak to the younger generation and the way we speak to ourselves. Um, and it can go too far. You know, we've all met those people who are absolutely confident with no basis to be. They are absolutely lacking in self-awareness. They are horrible. And that's not very good either. Yeah. But yeah. I think we have to be on this constant journey of, you know, this 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 mixture of believing in ourselves and believing in the outside world and kind of coming to an equilibrium and pushing ourselves while still, you know, taking feedback on board, but disregarding feedback that's not effective even or correct and it's 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 that's the i think the the journey of life becoming good yeah. at that hello and welcome back to another episode of the podcast delighted to have you here and i was fascinated this morning when i read about this huge iceberg and the way it was phrased in the article was the iceberg has finally decided to move on. And I find that on a scale unfathomable because it's almost like three times the size of New York City, maybe bigger. And it's this vast chunk of ice that was grounded. And when it's, when they say it like that, it's like almost it was, it was not given permission by the, by, by, by the, what, what, what do they call it? The dock master or the, the port authorities to move ahead in its journey because it was carrying like, uh, illicit drugs. I love that word again, illicit drugs as opposed to crocin. And, um, it's, it's almost like we need to give permission to this vast movement of nature in our words. And, um, like we have control over it, right? Because 4,000 square kilometers of ice on the go. And it just shows the scale sometimes that we don't really understand because we think of things in a very human context of how big things are, how big this, the shuttle was or the space rocket that uh, SpaceX launched. And it's quite remarkable in that way what we've achieved and the scale of things that we've achieved, the bridges and the dams and the, and the other constructions and the tunnel across or under the tunnel over these things connecting two mountains. But just four fucking thousand square kilometers of ice. And some of these things are just mind-bogglingly beautiful. And that thing's on the move. And it's picking up steam like there's a secret mission inside which has these, I don't know, earthlings, which are not us or who are not us, controlling and um, directing this massive chunk of ice. And I just find that crazy that some of the things that we are witnessing now are prehistoric in their um, in their formation. They're un Un unbelievably huge and that's the scale the earth works on right it doesn't think of 100 years of industrialization 50 years of climate change or 40,000 or whatever years or 4400 years of carbon co2 emissions and 10 years of smartphones it's thinking of okay I'm going to give it some time for this to grow. And we don't talk about like, oh, until he graduates high school. But like, let me give it a couple of million years, maybe 200 just to be on the safe side for these things to develop, to take shape. And then we'll see when to move them. Let it be grounded for how long? Five minutes, one hour, 10 days. No, not on the scale of patience that human beings have or don't have. But let, let it just sit there. Let it just fester. Let it just think about what it's done for 50,000 years. Give or take some change. And I love that scale of things. Um, and we find that unbearingly um, um, unthinkable because for us it's a shot, 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 shot. Because it's, it's what, eight years, 10 years is one tenth of our life. 
if we're lucky, or maybe it's more like 20% of our life. And we can't understand that these things take time and these things are beyond our control. They're beyond our lifetime. And when we put panic buttons on to things that have been shaping up for the past 300 years, 400 years, we think that, my God, that's a long time frame. But yeah, the earth and all its systems and all its functions just laughs at that. If there was a laughter track or there were a bunch of people who were looking at us running around like headless chickens um, with headless chickens and how those headless chickens are contributing to all these things that we are doing in our time frame. It's laughable. It's like, man, let these kids play. They'll be done in their break. And then we can actually come back and get a move on with the plans that we've hatched 500 million years ago. And I love that. I love the vastness of that. I love the depth of that. I love the unthinkable nature of the fabric of time that we can't even understand and hats off to the iceberg to show us that that your timeline has absolutely fuck all to do with my plans so you worry your little heads about it humans because you can have your conferences you can have your oil rigs you can have your fossil fuels you can have your evs you can have all your hashtags and your new movements but i'll be sitting here playing my waiting game because it has no effect on me it only has an effect on you if I melt because I were you. <laughs> I just love that idea when I read that this morning. Four fucking thousand square kilometers. That's what? Crazy. Anyhow, that's my, um, just my, you know, nod to the planet and all its fast systems. But let me talk about systems in place that we've put in. And uh, to join me today to talk about crime and mental health is Jahan Kalinter from Sydney, Australia. He's a lawyer. He's an entrepreneur. He's a speaker. And he works for the Executive Law Group. And today I want to, you know, understand what it is we are neglecting to acknowledge, which is the criminal justice system, because it seems to be the final frontier to solve all the social uh, society's problems, all the social injustices, all the crimes and all the things that we perceive as criminal in the fight of good over bad. But uh, Jahan's here to talk about the cases he's worked with, the individuals, the, the, the nature of the criminal justice system, how mental health contributes to a lot of it, the symptoms of the problem, the underlying causes of all these issues, the social, the societal stress that we're experiencing, the, 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 the injustice of some of the situations, and generally what are these trends over the past few years that are causing a lot of the things we see and we put so easily labels onto. So it's a fascinating conversation. I'm sure you'll enjoy it because it affects all of us, whether we know it or not. And there are a lot of underlying tones that we pick up on, which is race, gender, uh, socioeconomic uh, disparities and so much more that is relevant to all of us right now, right here today. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Jahan Kalinter. Thank you as always for tuning in to the episode and I appreciate it and I'm sure you'll enjoy the conversation coming up. Jahan, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's a pleasure having you. Thank you for having me, Serpi. I've been looking forward to our chat. Yes, I'm excited to talk about the things. Uh, there, there's, there's so many things that you've been doing, you know, from finance to law and within law, you've been doing interesting work. But I want to start today's conversation uh, um, with these two topics, which I um, read a lot about in fictional context, but you 
involve yourself in real life with these topics, which is crime and mental health. Um, so could you first of all, maybe lead me in with how you got into these two fields, which seem to be, you know, uh, quite niche, but I think it's quite a quite, quite, quite a big population that, you know, has an overlap in these fields. Yeah, so um, I've been practicing law for about a decade now, a little bit over, and um, I never set out to be a criminal defense lawyer. It was not um, ever on the cards. It just sort of happened to be that when I um, graduated from law, I couldn't really find a job in certain fields. I had a friend who was a criminal lawyer, and he said, come and work with me. And through him, I learned so much. I made some connections and really became, um, I found something I'm super passionate about because before I became a criminal defense lawyer, I had a pretty, I think I probably had a pretty naive view of the world and saw people as either good or evil. And I really didn't appreciate much of the gray that goes on. But having worked um, a lot of public law, so a lot of work for people in low income situations, people um, on the margins of society, I really started to to understand a lot more that people fundamentally, I've, I, I can say this hand on heart, having dealt with thousands of cases now, that fundamentally people are very good. They may make a terrible mistake. They may, uh, they may have had such misfortune that their behavior um, is not what we would accept. But generally speaking, people are pretty good. Yeah. And one of the, one of the, the, the things that sort of started to stand out to me is that whenever I was dealing with people who kind of came into contact with the criminal justice system, firstly, many of them had had no support or very limited support um, in their in their upbringing. And secondly, many of them had underlying mental health issues. Now, mental health does not excuse your behavior, mm-hmm. but it does in some ways explain it. And it does in some ways inform perhaps maybe rather than treating people with a sense of contempt or a sense of, um, you know, you're a bad person. Maybe we should approach it with curiosity and a sense of how can we help this person? Yeah. And over the last decade, um, I've, you know, been doing primarily crime, um, everything from a traffic ticket in the local court all the way up to matters of terrorism and national security, cases pertaining to, you know, sexual assaults, um, arson, attempted murder, you name it, I've worked on it. Um, and really in that time, I've kind of developed a practice uh, guiding people on what I say is usually the worst day of their life. Mm-hmm. When someone looks at crime, it's such a wide spectrum of the acts of crime, but also the kinds of people and the motivation behind it. And as you pointed out just now, the the intention of people are good, but circumstances sometimes drive them to commit acts of crime out of desperation or out of being cornered by the, 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 the social uh, pressures and also the systems in place, right? Because, um, you know, you look at someone who's completely back um, against the wall when they have no money. And maybe there's some other cases where there is, uh, it's not money related, but it's emotional, uh, emotionally driven, right? Where they, they feel like they, they, they are a left no choice. But then you look at the, 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 the other end of the spectrum, which is the, um, Cases like Trump, which we're hearing where it's fraud or Sam Bankman-Fried, which is uh, privileged people who've got access to mental health support, people who've got all these various tools at their disposal, but yet go and commit crime on a much larger scale. And in some cases, of course, in many cases, it goes, um, uh, you know, with the best of lawyers, they with the best of defense lawyers, they get 
uh, scot-free or they get on bail. But then you hear about the system which is um, wrongly convicting people. And it's, you know, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but like in a book I read recently, it seems like the American prison system is one of the most well-run, well-oiled machines, which has got uh, so many innocent people incarcerated. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm creating quite a broad context here, but I just want to give you my uh, experience and my knowledge of this so you can comment as an expert because I could be completely off with my my perspective on this. I, I can't I, I can't meaningfully comment on the state of the United States, um, mm-hmm. you know, legal system. And um, I, I, I mean, I, I think you'd be naive to think that there isn't a prison industrial complex in the United States that, as you said, is a well-oiled machine. Mm-hmm. And um, that there are sometimes perverse incentives. One needs to only look at those cases like the the judicial officer or judge who was putting children in custody because he owned a share in the prison and stories like that, which are just absolutely harrowing and just go so far against what is permissible and what is acceptable. And when I say a majority of people are good, I mean that, but there are people out there who are bad or people that are selfish or people that are entitled or people who don't know any better or -hmm. people who think they're too smart by half. So, It's such a complex topic. You can't simply look at it through one one lens or one isolated case. In many ways, it's cheating for me because I only have to tell one person's story. I'm not a I'm not a criminologist or a, a sociologist. I don't look at a a much broader context. I'm, yeah. I I have the privilege of telling individual stories, but right. in that I do deal with the system, and I can say that the system here in Australia is crumbling. That it is very difficult to do this job. Um, in the U- UK, it appears to be the same sort of situation, quite literally crumbling. I was reading a story of um, the courthouse in the middle of a trial, a piece of masonry really falls from the roof, <laughs> you know, and it, it, I mean, if that's not a, a perfect, uh, liter- uh, a literal example of a, of a metaphorical issue, yeah. I don't know what it is, but it's, it's the, it's not the people in the system that are causing it to be that way. It's just that, it's very hard for people. And I, I count myself in this, you know, before I did this work to understand why it's so important to have a functional justice system, because without it, all of those other things that we take for granted sort of fail. If you can't have confidence that when you make a deal with someone, they'll honor it. And if if they don't, you can take them to task. Well, you'll see people not honoring deals. If you, if you can commit crimes, um, of gain and get away with them, you're more likely to do so. So it's so important to have a a proper justice system that enables us to help people and understand the full context. Because I think Australia and India, we borrowed heavily from the British uh, law, uh, legal system in in some aspects of structuring of our courts and structuring of things. And um, when these laws uh, are examined in today's context, uh, with uh, especially criminal law, um, you know, decriminalizing certain things, um, updating certain things. There's a lot of backlog. I don't know about Australia, but in India, from what I've heard, there's a lot of backlog of cases. And many times people just go waiting for their case to be heard, whether it's in civil or criminal courts. And a lot of times years go by before justice is served. And in some cases, justice even justice after many years isn't, isn't served because of whatever reason. Um, but when we look at these systems in place which are supposed to serve society and serve people and make sure that the people who commit crime go punished and the innocents are protected. Um, how how naive is that statement when I when I say that as a layperson? I mean, is it as black and white as the bad get in prison and the innocent go protected? Or is there a lot more gray in it? Uh, 
it is it is uh, it is it's it's not a naive sentiment, but it's an incorrect one. There is a lot of gray, and um, the systems that we've set up are wonderful. If they were properly resourced and they had the things behind them, the ideas of the, the concepts themselves are beautiful. The presumption of innocence that you 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 are entitled to have someone speak on your behalf. The fact that you know they must prove their case against you. These are very good things, but they come from a time when there was far less cases. You know, your average judicial officer would have to deal with a lot less. There was a lot less people. The system itself wasn't so clogged. And so, back, I mean, justice delayed is justice denied. And it's a very challenging situation. I've had a case, I'll never forget, client was charged or accused of bringing in um, certain prohibited drugs into Australia. Mm-hmm. He was remanded into custody. And it took two and a half years before we finally um, were heard. Mm-hmm. And the matter was finalized. And he was found not guilty. Now, this man has lost two and a half years of his life. Yeah in custody for something that was proven not to have happened. That's disgusting. Wow. That's, That's disgusting. Yeah. And and you, you, you find these situations all of the time. There are cases where somebody goes, I'll just plead guilty, not because I've done it, but because I'll get out of here faster. And expediency it makes more sense than, than justice. And so when those situations happen, it, it breaks your heart. No. There are cases where if the person had um, proper representation, the outcome would be completely different. And that shouldn't be the system, but it's kind of the system we have. Right. And and and, and oftentimes it's it's racially biased, right? Like in India, it's not racial because uh, it's not so distinct, the races in India. But of course, there is a socioeconomic bias uh, in some cases. And of course, uh, if you refer to America, there is this, this the population bias. And a lot of people say it's more black people, but it's, you know, from, again, my, my research isn't all... Uh, factual. A lot of it comes from books which are based in truth. Um, there are a lot of, you know, um, what do you call it? Latin, there's a Latin population, a black population. So in Australia, what is the situation uh, when it comes to um, the, 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 the criminal demographic? I, look, I don't have the statistics to back it up, but yeah. un- unfortunately, there is an overrepresentation of Indigenous Australians or First Nations Australians in custody. Mm-hmm. That's that's categorically correct. Um, right. And um, there is, you know, and I don't think it's by design, but mm-hmm. it, it happens. And I think, I think that, um, you know, you, you would have. Uh, people who maybe um, come at this with a with a bias and say, well, they're they're probably just more likely to be criminals. But I think that's a completely disgusting, racist, and incorrect sentiment. So, mm-hmm. I, I think you will see certain popular. I mean, there's no question that people with lower socioeconomic um, outcomes are overrepresented in the justice system. That is a that is a harsh truth. Whether that's because they commit crimes more often, whether that's because they're falsely accused, whether that's because they can't access representation, whether it's, I can't tell you why, but I can tell you what happens. And our goal as a society should be to be creating a society where we set people up to succeed, not, not punish them if they fail. Right. No, because when you look at these, um, these crimes, right. Where like, for instance, when I, I, I visited Australia just once, I went to Perth, I was there for a few days and, the first thing that struck me was, you know, one the night we landed, my wife and I were walking to our flat, which we were uh, staying at, and there were a lot of people on the sidewalk, which someone would call homeless people. And I asked someone, um, they said, yeah, there are a lot of indigenous people now hooked on to, crystal, uh, to meth. Um, I don't know if it's crystal meth or meth, but um, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, and these 
um, substances, substance abuse, let's call it, in thing, is uh, typically seen um, in the, obviously, in the lower economic groups. But when you compare mental health and uh, substance abuse, there's a lot of that happening as well. And, and, and I read somewhere recently in America, it's the opioid crisis, uh, which um, has in today's uh, uh, in today's time, it's a different population. It's the, it's the youth being um, affected by it. But at some point, it was the black population. At some point, it was someone else. So if you just dis- take, take away from the, the people, but you look at the substances and you look at the cause for the substances being used, which is, um, in some case, mental health. Um, what are we looking at right now? Is it um, a certain trend uh, over the years uh, with the cases you're seeing? Is um, there an escalation in the number of cases with with all the various things? Because if you look at the time we're living in, human beings have a lot more access to a basic life. Um, At least it seems like that. It's it's a it's a difficult question to answer. I mean, I I think I've certainly seen an uptake or an increase in what I've de- dealt with of people having a relationship with substances, whatever mm-hmm. that substance looks like. Yeah. Um, I think though that when we treat substance abuse as a criminal justice problem, which it can be, it absolutely can be, but when we le- treat it simply as a criminal justice problem rather than what it I think it is, which is a sociological mental health an economic problem, mm-hmm. then you really don't tackle the problem at its root. You yeah. tackle some of its consequences, and from time to time, you will stop some people doing it. But for many people, substance abuse is a way of coping with trauma. It's a way of coping with a world that they feel has forgotten them. And if you think that you're going to get someone to stop taking those substances because you're punishing them, that's not necessarily the case. Now, there's going to be a group of people that no matter what you do, they're going to take substances. And then there's an argument about, well, how do we harm minimize? And how do we, how do we, you know, do we set up, for example, um, centers for people to go and receive their, receive their substances? Yeah, yeah. Do we harm minimize? These are very complex questions. Yeah. But me, I think at least I view the war on drugs as having been a failure. Mm-hmm. I think it has caused un- unimaginable devastation for the people. I think we need to work towards harm minimization. And I think we need to understand the root causes of this. And I think there's in Australia, for example, we had a what's called a Royal Commission into, into um, uh, ICE, which is the drug you're talking about, meth. Mm-hmm. And it's it had some very staggering and clear findings that we need to think about this situation differently. Mm. Yeah, that's such a that's such an important thing that you mentioned, right? Like when you look at alcohol or you look at um, whatever it may be from the from the most acceptable to the most um, demonized drug, um, you don't ask. You, you look at someone and say, "Oh, he's he's abusive as an alcoholic," but you don't ask why, what led him to that, right, or led her to that, and. The, the thing is, how can on a social, on a scale of which we need to address it, which is when millions are being affected and the only solution being they're in prison, is, is, is what kind of system can we put into place to look at the why as opposed to what they've done because of the why? That's a great question. And whoever figures that out deserves a Nobel Prize. <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I mean, from my, from my position, this, I, I can say this having talked to thousands. So mm. I have a pretty large sample size. There is not a single person that has walked through my door and told me their story who has not at least had one 
one sentence or one moment that has absolutely broken my heart. I don't think I've ever dealt with someone who has not has not had a moment of just low. And similarly, everyone I've dealt with, even the worst of the worst, has done one or two things that make me proud of them as a human being. Mm-hmm. And I think it's this understanding that human beings are incredibly complex. We're not the best thing we do, nor the worst thing we do. We're who we are on an average Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And the the solution, I think, is perhaps to begin with this, rather than to begin with the, you, you know, um, it's very, very easy when you're from a wealthy, successful background, you've been educated and you've received support to look down your nose at someone who has nothing. It's yeah. very different and very hard. And I think far more important to, if you're in a different position, help those people up and look at them like a human being and say, how can I help you rather than how can I punish you? Because at the end of the day, it's whether the person was taking this, I mean, whether the person's taking the substance to run away from a trauma, whether they're taking the substance because they want, they're a hedonist. The the reality is what can we do to stop them from taking the substance and show them better options? And if that's a criminal justice solution, fine. But if that's a, a social justice or if that's a, a different solution, fine as well. We need those options. And, you know, that's such a weird thing, like in, in Bangalore, where there's, of course, uh, like the rest of India, there's a huge disparity. Now, you look at a laborer whose daily wages can barely get food on the table, but he spends, say, 50 bucks on some really bad liquor, gets smashed, goes and beats up his wife. He's thrown into a prison where he's thrashed by the police. But then you have a celebrity son who gets smashed on alcohol, maybe top shelf liquor, then drives drunk, runs over someone, but then gets scot-free. And it's the same substance. It's the same underlying, uh, maybe what, maybe both, um, maybe one is economic pressure and he's just not able to cope with this thing in the daily wage thing, but the other one may be an unloved child who, who knows, right? But I'm saying that the outward result is someone getting hurt, which is either the wife or some the person this guy ran over. But one is completely ruined by the system because he's beaten up, his legs are broken, he can't earn money. Now that's making the making the, the situation even worse. But one just gets away with it because of um, whose kid he is and the access he has to the, the, the I wouldn't say the, the benefit of doubt that the system gives. I'm not saying it always happens, but there've been a lot of examples where this happens. Um, Absolutely. So, so it's very hard, you know, to almost think, think like, I'm just speaking here as a lay, lay person, when when I look at say the the way these 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 substances are being distributed, right? Like there are there's a huge uptake of cocaine uh, use in India now, and it seems to be um, it's not done in the poor population because of course it's an expensive drug. But there are things that people do um, when they want access to drugs, whatever the, the the amount of money you have at disposal. But it almost feels, and this could this could sound like a conspiracy, and I don't mean to, but I just come I'm coming to you from what I've read and what I've heard. Is is there a purpose to these substances? Like when you say the substance is taken to cope, versus is the substance even being put out there, distributed in legal and illegal challenge uh, channels to create this 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 unrest in society for a certain reason and again you can you you don't have to answer as a lawyer because i know 
Um, <laughs> there's a lot of speculation involved, is a thing. But just as someone who's well, seen mean, so many cases, I, I think. Well, let, let's let's. I want to address firstly your you know your situation of the laborer versus the the the, the drunk driver. Instinctively, I think if a hundred people heard, heard that story, ninety nine percent of people would go. The laborer situation, while also awful, is much more understandable than the wealthy celebrities think. Yeah, and it's because it, it's because we, I think, human beings have a built-in sense of fair play. We are evolutionary. Uh, there's an evolutionary incentive to be community bonded, which is why loneliness is such a dangerous thing. And if someone is lonely, it's 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 got enormous health implications. Like it, you would rather be obese and have a safe uh, and a good community safety net than be in a relatively good cardiovascular shape and be socially isolated. That's worse for you. And and the, the studies on that are, are, are pretty staggering sort of things. So I think we all have this inbuilt sense of fair play when it comes to substances. My personal belief is this. I think there's a, that, that people in general, um, some firstly, for many, many people, they should never take any substances. They do not agree with them and they can open doors you can't close. So if you don't take things, don't start taking things, okay? Yeah. Because you might be, there are some people who take funny stuff and nothing bad happens and there are others that will destroy your life. Don't run, roll that dice if you don't have to. Yeah. Secondly, when it comes to when it comes to funny stuff, I think there's really three categories. There's stuff that people, that makes people go fast, mm-hmm. uppers, things like cocaine that you mentioned, mm-hmm. that people enjoy that feeling, that rush, that, that adrenaline. Then there's downers, things that slow you down, like opioids. And then there's things like um, things like um, hallucinogens, things who make you see things that aren't there, things like psilocybin, acid, et cetera. And I think the way people are, I think there's a, probably a, a physiological and physical basis that some agree with I think part of the human experience is a sense of curiosity and there is something intriguing intriguing about being in an altered state of mind yeah altered state of minds are what we really live for as human beings the problem is for many you know there is something profoundly beautiful i I quite like i quite like being in the outdoors and you know if you hike for an entire day and you reach the top of a nice a nice mountaintop and you feel that air on your face and you have uh, you know you look over and you see a vista or you you know you hold your partner's hand that is like being on top of the world now that is but it's hard to do that you have to take a day off work. You have to have the resources to go there. You have to hike for a day. You can get that with from a, a small bump of a drug. It's yeah. understandable why you would do that. And so it, it, it doesn't justify it, but it explains it. And I think one of the things is we need to stop this paternalistic telling people, don't do that, it's bad, because yeah. don't do that, it's bad, has failed. Don't do that, it's bad, should be part of the response. But if a parent, all they ever did was yell at their child, you would say that that parent is not a good parent and that child is likely to grow up with some issues. For a parent to be an effective parent, they must have a mixture of love, fear, respect, all of these things. There needs to be this mix. And for us to simply take the fear approach, it's failed. And that's Mm. that's what's so upsetting because – people are going to cope with pressure in different ways. Mm -hmm. Some are healthy and some are unhealthy. We need to make sure that people understand that generally speaking, drugs are, are without it being under the supervision and care of experts, 
Drugs are a dangerous thing and you should be very cautious if you're on them. But if you're going to take them anyway, no matter what people say, maybe we need to look at a way to minimize it. You know, maybe if that guy, that laborer is going to go get trashed and drunk, there needs to be some sort of system where he won't have access to his family or whatever have mm. you. Yeah. There, there, there needs to be things in place. The reality yeah. is with wealth, you can insulate yourself from that. If you can go out and get absolutely trolleyed, the, the reason I think that story upsets people so much that the person drinks and then drives, that guy can afford a chauffeur. That guy yeah. can afford a cab, right? That laborer Absolutely. can't afford any other options. And for us, that's why when your world is so small, you don't have many options. That's kind of why I think for many people, it, it speaks to us differently, which was a very, I hope I answered your question. No, it's got me thinking to more questions. So thanks. Uh, because this idea of good and bad baffles me, right? That there's a good child in class, there's a bad boy in class, there's a good student, a bad student, which might seem as something as simple as a classroom uh, session where because he shouted, he's a bad student, but then those labels stick on and then they become more and more limiting because the opportunity just seems to reduce and seems to drive that person down a certain path, which is predetermined by words being used at a young age for good or bad. But then you see examples of people who drink, they are they smoke, they probably occasionally indulge in some weed. They might even indulge in some recreational drugs, but they're just helpful, good friends. But then you have someone who's fit, who goes running 30 marathons a month, who's a great student throughout his entire or her career and ends up going and killing an entire family, right? So I'm saying there's absolutely um, no need for such distinct lines between good and bad. Absolutely. Look, the, 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 Things that are good in one context can be bad in another and things mm-hmm. that are bad in a context, you know. So yeah. um, I, I, I have always been, I, I've always been, I, you know, quite polite and I've always been relatively kind. It's something mm-hmm. that I've had. And um, it, it, when you're a kind person or when you're a polite person, there is a group of the population that for some inexplicable reason seems to think that kindness is a sign of weakness. And I mm. every year without fail two or three times I need to pull someone aside and say I think you're mistaking my kindness for cowardice and let's let me disabuse you of that right now because if you really want to get into it I can show you the iron in me I don't yeah. like doing that but I can now that assertiveness in one context is acceptable and in another it's not it's perfectly fine to be aggressive if you're playing sports it's you know assuming you play within the rules but it's not okay to be aggressive if you're you know at a social event and so um it's it's quite it's quite sad and scary that people internalize many of these stories about who they are and they yeah. go down these roads you know uh, the number of people that i think have thrown their lives into a state of disarray because some awful adult told them they're stupid or they're worthless mm. is profound yeah. it's profound and the number of people who've had beautiful, meaningful, helpful lives because some adult took an interest in them when they were younger is also profound. I think we really need to rethink the way we speak to one another and the way we speak to the younger generation and the way we speak to ourselves. Um, And it can go too far. You know, we've all met those people who are absolutely confident with no basis to be. They are absolutely lacking in self-awareness. They are horrible. And that's not very good either. Yeah, but yeah. I think we have to be on this constant journey of, you know, this 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 mixture of believing in ourselves and believing in the outside world and kind of coming to an equilibrium and pushing ourselves while still, you know, taking feedback on board but disregarding feedback that's not affecting 
effective and all correct. And it's, 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 that's the, I think the, the journey of life becoming good yeah. at that. Yeah. And you know, just, just, just since we're on this topic of drugs, it's not like uh, I want the entire conversation to be about it, but it seems like there are certain um, drugs that encourage violence and aggression. Like you, you hear of, you know, abuse after alcohol or you, um, uh, violence motivated by certain drugs, but then you hear people who are, and of course, I'm not making any blanket statements or stereotypes, but then you hear people who are, you know, stoned or on a, an ayahuasca mm-hmm. or psilocybin trip who aren't really harming too many people except except maybe, you know, the Instagram feed because of all these <laughs> posts they put up. But um, yeah, I find that interesting how certain people are attracted to certain kinds of substances. And as a result, that leads them to, to make certain decisions which harm them and harm others. But then there are certain other decisions which take you down this path of self-discovery and self, as you said, this altered state, which seems to give you more of an introspective uh, uh, and a reflective journey, which ends up benefiting you and benefiting people around you. But then there's more abusive, self-abusive and also externally abusive um, d- directions that people go in. I mean, if, if if you were to ask my own personal opinion, I th- think there is no drug more dangerous than alcohol. I think that mm. alcohol is probably responsible for more sadness, grief, and pain than any other drug in the world yeah. by a factor of 50 to 100, and it's mm. completely legal in most contexts. Yeah. Um, and I think that the, there are people who swear by the fact they had a psilocybin you know, experience that changed their life and brought them a sense of peace and clarity there you know there are studies that show that uh for example uh mdma uh, 3-4-methylene dioxymethamphetamine uh or ecstasy in if used in a clinical context can help soldiers and people suffering from extreme ptsd there's evidence that ketamine um which is a horse tranquilizer can be used to deal with extreme depression these Mm. are things that are worth exploring one of my uh one of the things that breaks my heart is that you know, we have these these tools that no one can utilize in any way, shape, or form because they're they're labeled as these dangerous substances. Now, there is absolutely, in my opinion, a need to protect the general public from people just grabbing these things and going crazy. Yeah. But for us to say that there's no benefit to them whatsoever is also crazy. Right. No, because you mentioned that, um, and that's such a it's it's such an obvious you know thing but n- no one seems like because you know I, I drink and i'm not going to shy away from that but i've seen the dark side of using alcohol as a coping mechanism versus alcohol as a um recreational uh beverage to relax but you can easily cross the line with before even knowing it right and uh, you know I've, I've traveled to australia as i said to perth i've traveled uh, doing comedy to to Edinburgh, that's Scotland, to the to, to London, England, to the US, and just alcohol um, in especially the UK and in Australia is very um, considered part of daily life, right? A few beers and barbecue or whatever the thing. But I saw the 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 um, I wouldn't say the hesitancy, but there was such a um, unsaid fear of alcohol in Edinburgh because of certain um, things they have in their society, right? Because of uh, depression, mental health issues, because uh, th- the servings of, 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 of scotch or whiskey was limited to a certain, um, a certain dosage. Alcohol of, of a certain nature wasn't sold in the grocery store. So um, when you look at 
of course, I, do, I don't expect you to comment on Scottish drinking habits or the, the justice system there or the mental health system there. But you see um, these themes resonating in cultures um, where there is um, alcohol being uh, considered as a part of life. But contrasting to that, you, you, you see some of these Italian cultures where wine is had with dinner. So I don't know if, if I'm posing a question to you, but what what is this um, cultural landscape saying about the relationship with alcohol and mental health and a resulting need for violence or causing violence? It, I think I think uh, you know poison and medicine is usually in the dose. Mm-hmm. You know that's the reality. I, I I I'm I'm not averse to from time to time a nice glass of whiskey or scotch. I'm mm-hmm. not averse to a nice red with some pasta. I'm not, I, I, you know, I'm not here to tell anyone how to live their life. I always tell my clients, I advise you decide. That's the relationship we have. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I advise and you decide. I can advise you of what to do, but you ultimately make the decisions. You're an adult. Now, that being said, I think that things like alcohol, it's very easy to cross the threshold. You know, I, as a general proposition i'm um I, I i abstain most of the time i will have a glass on a special occasion but um you know i'm, I'm fairly into my fitness i quite enjoy that and i for me um alcohols the, the 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 big downside for alcohol is it affects my sleep and for me sleep is the most important aspect of keeping good mental health i have found that if i have a few days without good sleep my life starts to feel very much out of control and i yeah. work too hard for so I, I, that is the primary reason I stay away from alcohol, not because I'm violent or thuggish or it just hurts my sleep. Yeah. And it's very hard in Australian society when you're going out and people are like, oh, do you want to drink? And you say, no, people look at you like you have a problem. And mm. it's taken a time to build up this muscle. Yeah. You know, it's tiring to explain to people, look, the reality is that I'm, 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 a, I'm a grumpy old man. I'm almost 40. Mm. I don't, if I drink, I can't sleep. And if I can't sleep, I'm, I'm, I'm useless. So please leave me alone. Yeah. Um, and it's it's a hard thing to do. So I can understand why young people generally can, are, are quite hesitant because it's easier to just go with the flow. Yeah. That's why I think um, alcohol is a very dangerous sort of slippery slope because, and it's so easy. You Once the gate is open, it's very easy to just keep doing it. And as a system, um, which is so, uh, which comes down so hard on things like cocaine or heroin, why has alcohol got away so easily with it? I have I have my working theories, but I don't want to speculate. Okay, but I think I I wish I could. My mm-hmm. working theory is that it was just lobbied by more successful people. There was a time and place when MDMA was legal. There was a time and place when all of many of these substances were legal. I think that it was just lobbied by a more effective body, you know, and and and. Mm-hmm. To alcohol's credit, if consumed responsibly, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. If consumed responsibly. And the if being the operative word. If yeah. is the operative Because a friend of mine who's a doctor and he works with a lot of uh, patients who have mental health issues. And he said, um, you know, in India has a huge history, a very, very long history with hashish, uh, with marijuana. In fact, even if you look at Vedic texts, it's, it's, it's referred to over there. But it's hugely... Um, looked down upon. It's illegal. Um, And, you know, marijuana and hemp, the plant, have such benefits, but it's completely wiped out because of certain 
cultural narratives which have demonized it. And that's strange, right? That you are now having a a, um, a modern India, which I'm not saying uh, celebrates alcohol, but it's accepted where one of the signs of success is that, you know, open up a bottle of Shivers or a bottle of Johnny Walker gold um, as you get more money. But the same society calls people, you know, potheads or stonehead. <laughs> I'm just saying in, in, a, in, a, in the ability to create a new context, we still seem to get get mired with the old messaging that has been passed on. That's the reality, um, I, I think, most over the world. Um, yeah. You know, and, and look, the reality is cannabis, if used responsibly, can also be something. I mean, can, the cannabinoid system, medically speaking, is a Amazing. It can deal with chronic pain. It can be used to get people off opioids. It can be used to help people with anxiety. There's a lot of good that can be done using it if used responsibly. Yeah. I think the, the 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 image that is portrayed that all people who use cannabis are these useless stoners who sit around drooling without making any meaningful contribution to society is also ludicrous. There are these these shortcut. Look, everyone. I think everyone knows someone who mm. smokes too much marijuana and yeah. everyone knows someone who drinks too much alcohol and everyone knows someone who abuses too much cocaine. Everyone knows these. Those are not the examples that you have to look at. You have yeah. to look at as part of a responsible, responsive life, what are the things that we should and shouldn't do? What are the levels we should and shouldn't have? That's yeah. the difference. And I think the problem is that it's the devil is in the detail. The poison is in the dose. I wish some of these things were spoken about in school, you know, when, uh, when, a teacher or a you know someone who's uh, you look up to at certain parts of your schooling uh, time because when you're say entering your teenagers you're like oh man I wish I could have you know I wish I could get smashed because you watch it in movies or you've heard it or you've heard an elder brother and elder sister doing it but I wish there it was spoken about in a much more mature way I know the kids may not be mature but I think hearing it saying just like what you said. Um, your parents might drink occasionally. They might have a drink every day. Some parents might drink more than other parents. And you might have had an experience as a child where your parent got drunk and hit you or yelled at you. And you might have a completely different opinion of it. But I think just having these conversations without um, seeing it, like say on CSI, where there's a you know alcoholic guy who killed his whatever partner. <laughs> I feel I feel it's just the, the the environment in which I mean I'm just taking myself back to when I was 13 or 14. If I had I had a teacher who I looked up to or someone who spoke to me without saying, you know, sex is bad. Do not do it, you know, or do not drink. Or it, it, it was so extreme, the view on it. Like if I catch you with, you know, a pack of cigarettes, I'm going to expel you. It, the messaging is so either it, it dares you to or it terrifies you, you know. I think you've nailed the hammer on the head. I mean, the studies out of the US that show that if you teach people sex education, if you teach them meaningful sex ed education, things like protection, you know, um, you know how options work, prophylactics, you consent, will find yeah. that the, the yeah. consent, you find the rates of things like youth pregnancy of sexual assault go down dramatically. Compare and contrast that to education of abstinence only. That's your only option. You, um, STDs, in pregnancies and sexual assaults go up. Mm. You know, you have to, what I think a lot of the, these systems do is they fail to take into account a practical and pragmatic view of the human animal. The human animal, humans are not logical, they're psychological. And psychology is a complicated field. And coming at it from a perspective of everyone must be perfect all of the time is ridiculous. Yeah. How do we account for the reality that people are fallible 
and how do we keep that in mind? That's the game. Yeah, because good people do bad shit and bad people, I mean, again, we got the good and bad, but it's, again, this this circumstances. Bad people do good things all the time and good people do bad things all of the time. People are oh, complicated. Yeah. And I think that that's the, if, 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 if your listeners take only one thing away from that, it's this understanding that one, people are complicated and there is gray. And because you've done a bad thing does not necessarily make you a bad person. And two, mental health is very, very complicated. It, However, I think genuinely it can always get better. It, it, there are things you can do, but you need to get support. You need to speak to someone who knows you. You need to go see a professional. You need to try different strategies. Um, don't give up on yourself. Because I think that's so important because we tend to look at someone who's done these things for whatever reason, right? And the judgment is passed before even judgment is passed in the justice system. As a collective, we judge, uh, whether it's a classmate who did something wrong, a friend in our circle who did something wrong, a colleague who did something wrong. And this idea of wrong, again, is just taken up and as you said, we point our nose, we look down at this person going, oh, never. And this ability to accept an apology and say sorry meaningfully and it taken into consideration by the group and forgiveness, these are such powerful, they're not legal tools, but do you think that they can actually be social tools that can give person a person a second chance? Um, when I spoke at TED, um, and I think that's how we kind of cross paths, when I spoke at TED, and I, and I say this sincerely, the power of a well-spoken, genuine apology from a place of actual remorse is so profound. And I've seen this. I've seen the difference. You know, somebody might go to jail versus might walk walk out of that courthouse and go back with their family. A person may lose their business versus they may get, you know, more runway and they can rescue their business or their family. Uh, people who may have never seen their children again, reunite and have meaningful relationships. You have the power of sorry is profound, but it, you have to mean it. You, it. It needs to cut through. Now, just because you apologize and you're ready to apologize doesn't mean that everyone will be, willing and able to accept that apology yeah. but it is the it is, i think it is one of the most powerful and poorly understood tools as human beings because we have pride and we have ego and we and i'm guilty of this too i've lost people in my life because i've been too proud to say sorry the way that it's supposed to be said and um what a tragedy so i think i think it's not even a legal tool it's a human tool you know the importance of it is something i um recognize because when I, um, you know, just to give you a little context, I put out a special in 2020 called Thank You, I'm Sorry. Um, because those words are so powerful, but if not used in the way they are meant to be used with the meaning behind it, with the empathy behind it, with the gratitude behind it, or with the acceptance behind it, they're just words that you can use to cope, just like alcohol, just like drugs. Because I did that for years, right? I would say thank you because I felt inadequate as a visually impaired child. And I would say thank you for everything. If someone said, you know, your, even if it was a fair um, thing that I was, which I was due, um, if someone would give that to me, like for instance, I would, um, you know, of course, I'm not saying I shouldn't thank them, but I would just say it as a way to get accepted into the tribe. And by not saying that I would be, 
um, shunned. And again, I would use sorry for that. I would apologize not because I felt I was sorry for what the act I did, but I was saying sorry for who I was. And those two things, those two words were so, uh, which cast such a shadow on me for years because it made me um, in my head feel completely inadequate and um, as a result, built up so much resentment. And finally, when I did acknowledge it and write this show, um, it was almost like I'm done with these words in the way they were used. But now I completely appreciate what you're saying because if if you you can easily say sorry 100 times to your partner and still continue doing the same shit. And after a few uh, months, a few years, the word has no meaning because they'll say, hey, you just say it the next day because it's just a word. But that one sorry versus the thousand sorries when it's coming from a place of, you know what, I'm making an effort, I've changed. And the sorry comes with physical change in you. It's profound, as you said. Uh, yeah, you've nailed it. You know, and, and, and sorry can be used as a social lubricant to just yeah. get us through the day. Um, to avoid a confrontation that we we know we need to have to you know forgive a bad behavior that we don't intend to change yeah but it can also be beautiful and deep you know um when i when i'm you know when i'm having superficial interactions i always say how are you Mm. because i don't care but when i actually want to connect with someone i go how are you really yeah and just having that word really yeah it, it, it opens the door and so and I, look, I'm I'm not telling people to go out there and spend all of their time, you know, really digging in because it's emotionally exhausting and it's tiring. And truthfully, not all interactions are worth it. You know, yeah. the person, you know, the person that you might see, you know, that you might have a, and I'm fairly sure the, you know, the person serving me a coffee just wants to serve me a coffee and go on with their life. They don't want a deep down analysis of how, you know, our, you know, relationship is, if it's a, a fairly transactional type of exchange, but with the people who are nearest and dearest to you, you should be checking in, yeah. you know? You and I'm going to add in. to that by saying, if you are constantly saying thank you and sorry to the world outside, the daily interactions and not saying thank you and sorry to the people who matter, that's when you know you're, you're, you're not adding weight to those words yeah absolutely because we end up pleasing the whole world and we say thank you and we this thing because we don't want to be seen as vulnerable to the outside world but the people who are helping us with our you know the the core group if you want to call them like your parents your your family or um and and you don't want to um acknowledge them you don't apologize for them for the things you've done uh and and that means actual physical apology, physical thank you, which is showing it through 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 the act of thanking and the act of apologizing. Um, if you don't do that, then you clearly um, you know not understanding the, the the depth of what those words can do and what they mean. Yeah, I agree. I agree fully. And and look, a, a big a lot a, part, a big part of my job is telling a person's story, maybe with words they don't have, and telling it through a context that they don't have, which is the law, mm. right? Um, and and a big part of that, I think, is being empathetic. My job is to to, to humanize my client, take them from the accused or the or the you know the the accused or the criminal, and turn them into you know so you know soapy, yeah. Turn them into Jahan yeah. and show you as a human being, and show the good in you, and show the things in you that matter. And it's 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 a it's a privilege to do that. It's difficult, but it's a privilege. 
I can imagine the power of um, the human connection which comes out of that, right? Because when you are just a contract or you're just a signature or you're just a an ID number or you're just a docket number in the court, it's so easy to just pass judgment as a public going, yeah, he's, and, and put these tropes on them, right? Yeah, I'm sure he's this skin color. As a result, he's pushed into doing this. And it becomes a very intellectual debate that you can have on social media and say, I told you this is going to happen and make it into policy, which you can then debate about by when becoming president. But when you say, hey, you know, Sandeep, who had this, it automatically just goes deeper down into the human experience, which then, uh, I don't know, some, there are still some people who sit over, over, a, over a latte and you know have an intellectual um, session about it, but it just makes it that much more um, human as opposed to just a, a file number. That's exactly right. And, and it's, it's bringing out that complexity and it's, it's explaining, not always justifying, but explaining how we got to where we got and how we're going to go from where we got to where we need to go. And that's, that's about being a human being. It's, it's one of the, it's one of the beautiful parts of this job is that for many people, I'm the first adult who's ever taken an interest in their life story. And that's so sad. That, I mean, it's so amazing that you do it, but it's so sad that it hasn't been done. Yeah, Absolutely. You, uh, people live, many people live lives of quiet desperation and it's, and, you know, I think it's important to, we as a society love to celebrate the exceptional. We, we look at, you know, Elon Musk and we look at these athletes who are, you know, but there's a beautiful, quiet dignity and respect to the every man. And for many of them, men, women, they don't feel seen and feeling seen is more important than physically seeing someone. You know, you probably have an appreciation of this that goes far beyond anything that I can ever imagine. But the ability to to have people to know that people are when you speak to them, or when you use something about you makes them see what what is inside them. No, it's an amazing feeling. And, you know, I, I, I remember reading this book by Don Winslow. It's called The Cartel. And it's a it's, it's talks about the entire Sinaloa cartel. And. Um, there's one character which really um, resonates what you just said. He's this African-American guy wrongly imprisoned. And every day he writes a letter to Obama at that point to get a pardon. And or he's written a letter and he's counting off the days um, waiting for a pardon. And in his head, he's like, we've got a brother in the White House. That's what he says in the book. And it's just heartbreaking, right? The, the hope that this person, but the complexity of this person, he's like the, he's like the, he mentors the younger prisoners. He's just one of the best human beings. If who was outside would make society a better place, but all he's doing is wasting away his life for this hope that he might get a pardon. And it just captures what you said in a nutshell, right? That this humanity is so strong wherever it is, but we undermine it by um, these trivial terms and, and, and we don't, uh, we, we wait for these highlights, as you said. We, we celebrate these achievements, which nothing wrong with, but there's so much dignity in every human being, but it's not recognized and uh, appreciated because it isn't matching the top three things that we need to be celebrating. I agree. And, yeah. and that's exactly, you, you, you've, you've, you've nailed it on the head. It is this, it is this um, malaise that, human beings have far more in common than they do uh, different 
Yeah. That's why racism is so stupid. That's why sexism is so stupid. That's why, you know, judging people on arbitrary characteristics is just insanity. Yeah. There is enough reason, there's enough reason to like and dislike people based on their actions, based on the way that they behave, that you should be very, very quick, um, very quick to dismiss ridiculous notions like because of someone's inherent race or because of someone's inherent, you know, circumstances of birth, that you should write them off. Uh, because I, we all know people who have um, circumstances of birth far harder than we can imagine, who've gone on to do wonderful and brilliant things. We all know people who have circumstances of birth where they should have been, it should have been a, a golden carpet of pleasure, ease, and generosity who've just destroyed themselves and destroyed others around them. And I think that all of those concepts are things that when you look at the human, all of us are about, I, I would say, nine meals away from being ravenous animals. And so just, just remember that, be respectful, be kind. Nice. Uh, Johan, before you leave us today, I want to ask you a last thing. It's about a drug, a substance. I know I've I made it seem like it's all about drugs. The world is full of drugs. But, you know, we, you spoke about the importance of your story being heard, recognizing the depth of that story, the, 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 the constant shifting nature of the story. But it seems like we're in a position today where stories can be so easily shared. People's voices can be heard. And it's through the internet. It's through AI. It's through things. But what is this one drug, which I'm going to mention to you now, what is this doing to our society and crime? And that drug being, uh, and not just crime, but mental health, and that drug being social media. <laughs> very well said very well said social media uh look social media is one of the, i have benefited tremendously from social media it has given me a platform to share my views my thoughts and to connect with the world at large um but you would be foolish to think that it doesn't come with enormous toxicity there is absolutely nothing you can say on social media that someone somewhere will not take the wrong way and i remember i made a video of i was playing with a, a cute puppy Mm -hmm. And somebody said, why do you hate cats? You're a cat hater. Just <laughs> nonsense. Just absolute drivel from fools. There's a lot of that. And, yeah. and I think with the problem with social media, it's easier because I'm 36 and I know how reality works. I see an ideal that someone's posting and I know that's not reality. But for younger people, they think that that's actually it. And maybe there are. There's, I'm sure there's a small percentage of people whose life are picnics and sunshine. Yeah. But when you compare your everyday uh, reality to someone's highlight reels, it starts to create a distorted sense in your mind about what reality is and isn't. And I found a lot of people are so desperate to sh showcase a life that they miss the present moment and they make themselves unhappy. Social media is a tool that should you should be using it to make your life better. It should not be making your life worse. If it's making your life worse, then seriously consider either changing what you look at or disconnecting from it. Well said. And just to add to that, I feel if we are one side, what you're saying is when you talk to your clients and it, it breaks your heart that no one's heard their story. And then on the on the flip side, you have what is a story, which is 60 seconds and what you can put into that. It just absolutely blows my mind that that's where we're heading. And I feel you can't live in 60 seconds. You can't get depth in 60 seconds. But what you can do a show off your nail polish for the day or how many push-ups you can do, which <laughs> takes away the depth of humanity. And I'm scared about that because um, that's where you're being rewarded online. Absolutely. 
absolutely. And, you know, um, and the thing is, you should never compare yourself to where someone else is today. Uh, you should only compare yourself to where some where you were yesterday. Because the reality is that while they may have all these profound advantages, I can tell you that I know some of the most successful people you've ever met. Many of them are very unhappy. And I've known some people that you've never heard of, and they are living lives of absolute joy and pleasure. And your, your only obligation is to find your purpose and live it to the best of your obligation. That's all you can do. Well said. And thank you so much for sharing all these insights. And, you know, God bless the work you do, my friend, because I think um you you know you you hear about influence now and uh influencers who have millions of followers and today they sell you organic uh cheese and tomorrow it's uh vegan leather bags uh i don't know what influence that is maybe good for them but these thousands of conversations and lives you've represented and and changed i think that is truly influence and thank you for doing that i i appreciate you sophie thank you for having me on your show my friend My pleasure, Jahan. Thank you. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, please do check out the other episodes on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. And I would much appreciate it if you could like the video, share it with people who you think might enjoy it. And of course, do subscribe to the channel because it will help me and the podcast grow and reach more people just like you. So thanks again. Appreciate it.